Hello everyone, and welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Ever wonder how we come up with stories here? Here's a great example. This all started, this meaning the writing of this podcast, Tin Pan Alley, when I began to research for a story on Al Capone, and I was looking for a pathway into the story. Of course, every story needs a beginning. And of course, any story about Alphonse Capone has to start with Prohibition, meaning when the sale of alcohol was made illegal back in 1919, and Chicago, where Capone became one of the most notorious gangsters in history. And then I was reminded of the 1957 Frank Sinatra version of Chicago, when he called Chicago that toddlin' town. And I couldn't let that go by without wondering what that toddlin' town meant. Toddlin' as in drinking too many toddies? Or toddling meaning people walking unsteadily due to heavy consumption of alcohol? Go ahead, look it up, and I'll bet you can't find the meaning of toddling. So I'm searching for the meaning of toddling, and I still haven't put pen to paper yet, which is really an allegory for fingers to keyboard. And finally I come upon the writer of the song, Chicago, a German immigrant named Fred Fischer, who spoke with a heavy German accent and learned piano from a black guy in a bar on State Street in Chicago, that great street, in the town that Billy Sunday, the ex-pro baseball player that turned evangelist and lobbied hard to close all the bars, couldn't shut down. Fisher was a prolific songwriter, writing music and lyrics for hundreds of songs. He's even listed in Guinness as the guy who wrote the most successful Irish songs. Go figure. Fred Fisher had moved to the U.S. in 1900, starting his songwriting career in Chicago and later moving to New York City, where he found work on Tin Pan Alley and penned hits like Peg of My Heart, and the band played on, Dardanella, and many others. When Fisher's song titled Chicago, That Toddlin' Town came out way back in 1920, there was a huge rush of bands to perform it, and every performer wanted a piece of it. Chicago by 1922 was a party in town, and as it turned out, making alcohol illegal to sell was making it even more desirable to enjoy, especially since the Great War had just ended and people were feeling pretty good about that, so an entire culture of speakeasies sprang up, illegal bars. Dancing and drinking became the rage, music writers became popular icons, and mob bosses like Al Capone were getting filthy rich off bootleg liquor. Yes, bootleg. That name for that little pouch that they used to make on the inside of a boot that could hold a little bottle of hooch. And one of those dances that became all the rage at the time, in addition to the Charleston and the Lindy, which, by the way, was named after Charles Lindbergh, was the Toddlin. According to music historians, it was a springier, bouncier version of the Foxtrot. When Fisher noted in the song, I saw a man, he danced with his wife, Maybe they were doing the toddle. In 1921, a Chicago Tribune story announced the coming of a $250,000 toddle palace to Woodlawn. Another story advised women to find more time for relaxation. If you don't know how to toddle, learn how and get a handsome party frock and handsome man and dance till you have some of that good old youth back. So now we have a number of directions I can take this story. We can do Al Capone. We can do Charles Lindbergh, or we can do Tin Pan Alley. Tell you what, we'll do all three in the coming weeks and months. 
but Tin Pan Alley has been on my list the longest, and one big bonus is that I can use some of the music, most of which is in the public domain. So let's get going with this story. We're already on page two. And by the way, here's Carl Fenton's orchestra and The Toddle from 1921. and welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and the Legends of Tin Pan Alley. America, the Great Melting Pot, has given the world a lot of wonderful music. We're not competing with Europe for classical music and wouldn't try, but when it comes to memorable songs that anyone can sing or play on the piano, American music is hard to beat, and each city and region has its own flavor. From Chicago to New Orleans and Memphis to Miami, and Texarkana to Tinseltown. But if you had to pinpoint one place where popular American music that you can play on a piano or belt out at a baseball game really took off, it would be the small section of West 28th Street between Broadway and 6th that they used to call Tin Pan Alley. Today it's lined with crumbling four-story row houses and first-floor shops that don't look or sound at all like they did 100 years ago, when a good portion of those four stories along that city block bore signs that advertised the presence of music publishers who kept full staffs of music composers, songwriters, musicians, singers, and song pluggers who would take new songs public and try and win new business wherever they could find it. From the writers, to the singers, to the composers, to the pluggers, they're the music legends of Tin Pan Alley. They called it Tin Pan Alley because at any time of the day or night, passerbys could hear the sound of dozens of pianos ringing out tunes, so many that it sounded like, as one New York Herald reporter, Monroe Rosenfield, put it in 1903, it sounds like a bunch of tin pans clanging together. Tin Pan Alley was a vibrant piece of history between 1880 and the late 1920s, although some folks make a good case that Tin Pan Alley, having contributed to both war efforts, World War I, and World War II really survived until around 1945-46. Others say that the radio and phonograph was replacing the piano in the parlor by the 20s. But you can counter that by saying that both the radio and the phonograph became great promotional tools for music, as radio especially exposed people to new choices and became a trendsetter and a star maker. When I think of Tin Pan Alley, it places me in New York around 1910, in the years when O. Henry was writing his short stories that take us back to carriages, brownstones, gaslights, and Irish cops on every corner. And we feature many of his great stories over at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. 
but New York City was already the music publishing hub for the U.S. by the 1850s, when a young, prolific songwriter named Stephen Foster moved to New York from Pittsburgh, met the right publisher, and received $1,400 for a genie with the light brown hair, a king's ransom in those days. Foster had started his songwriting career years before, writing songs for minstrel shows, penning popular songs that are still sung today, like Camp Town Races, Oh Susanna, The Old Folks at Home, and dozens of other songs, but squabbles over copyright ownership and frustration with lack of commercial success had driven him to New York in 1853 to seek a better income. And he worked hard there, writing over a hundred songs. But after Jeannie with the light brown hair, and despite a partnership with Bowery friend George Cooper, all his money and savings had disappeared. By 1863, Stephen Foster was drinking heavily, his wife and daughter had returned to Pittsburgh, and he was living very poorly in the Bowery in a twenty-five cent a night room. And the quality of the songs he was writing was not what his publishers were looking for. I know of one really moving Civil War song he wrote during that time, that being, Have You Seen My Brother in the Battle, which is actually a hauntingly beautiful song. But Foster's downfall was fast approaching. But not long after that song, in 1864, after he had lost everything, including his home in New York City, Stephen Foster, one of the best songwriters that ever lived in the 19th century, died broke and alone on the Bowery in Bellevue Hospital on January 10, 1864. If Stephen could have hung on past the age of 37, until the years after the war, he probably would have risen to success again. Either way, he's definitely one of the early legends of Tin Pan Alley. Here's a portion of I Dream of Jeannie with the Light Brown Hair. Sales of pianos started booming after the Civil War, when a lot of effort was being placed into rebuilding home and hearth, in hopes that there would never be another war. And it was then that music publishing began its long reign of popularity. The parlor became again the room in the home for the family to come together to sing, play piano, and entertain guests. And piano makers like Baldwin, Sterling, and Weissner were enjoying phenomenal sales 
while publishing houses in cities like Cleveland, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Cincinnati, and New York were scrambling to meet demands for music that was easy to sing and play. In New York City, the rise of the theaters around Herald Square was creating a larger and larger demand for new music, and theaters, vaudeville houses, and musical saloons also became the best place for publishers from Tin Pan Alley, just a few blocks up from Herald Square, to promote their music. Roy Cordell, another New York Herald reporter, wrote this about Tin Pan Alley in 1903. Every day you'll see noted people in the musical comedy world hunting in the alley for songs that will add to their fame. People like Paula Eduardes, Marie Cahill, Blanche Ring, Dan Daly, Marie Dressler, and Lou Dockstetter, all active in the hunt. Take Marie Cahill and Blanche Ring, their names are forgotten today, relegated to labels on old 78 RPM records. But in 1903, a little over 100 years ago, they were both top musical comedy stars singing at vaudeville theaters like the Bijou on Broadway, which I think still stands. And they had recording contracts with companies like Edison and Decca, so they were no small potatoes. So who were the big names that came out of Tin Pan Alley? What was the music all about? And what are the stories and legends? Let's start with George M. Cohen's story. He wrote over 300 songs in Tin Pan Alley, among them the World War I hit, Over There, then God Bless America, Sweet Georgia Brown, the theme song for the Harlem Globetrotters, Yankee Doodle Dandy, You're a Grand Old Flag, and Give My Regards to Broadway, just to name a few. Cohen was born in Providence, Rhode Island, on July 4, 1878, into a famous vaudeville family, and made his first professional appearance at the age of nine in Little Georgie, and had written his first successful music play by the age of 26. In addition to the 300-plus songs he penned, he also produced, directed, and starred in 40 musical dramas. So he was no stranger to the stage and singing. In the 1950s, his life was documented in the film Yankee Doodle Dandy. And the next time you're in Times Square, look for his 8-foot-tall bronze statue. New York City loved George M. Cohen. And here's a story about George M. Cohen that you've probably never heard. Cohen has written into the tax code, and in the process has done us a great big favor for years. In George M. Cohen versus Commissioner, Cohen was scrutinized by the IRS for failing to document deductible business expenses. In his defense, he claimed that as a busy performer and producer, he couldn't be expected to write everything down, and that as a well-known Broadway star, his expenses were credible. Luckily for him, the court ruled in his favor. Now the so-called Cohen Rule stipulates that if a taxpayer has not documented deductible expenses, he may make a reasonable estimate, provided that the expenses are legitimate. Here's Give My Regards to Broadway, and this is the Billy Murray version from 1905. Without a doubt, 
Then there was George Gershwin, another legend of Tin Pan Alley, and one who still has a huge following today. He was born Jacob Gershowitz in 1898 in Brooklyn, and found music a whole lot more exciting than school. So he dropped out at age 15 to become a professional song plugger in Tin Pan Alley, playing in nightclubs. He was soon pounding out tunes for money in those nightclubs, and making a good income. But he was smart enough to know that his talents were many, and he needed coaching. By the time he was 20, he was one of the most sought-after musicians in America. He composed a wide range of music, from jazz to opera, as well as popular songs for stage and screen. From 1920 to 1924, Gershwin composed for an annual production put on by George White. After a show called Blue Monday, the band leader in the pit, whose name was Paul Whiteman, asked Gershwin to create a jazz number that would heighten that genre's respectability. So out he came with Rhapsody in Blue, and the early version that you'll hear in just a few minutes was recorded by Paul Whiteman's band in 1923. Legend had it that Gershwin forgot about Whiteman's request until he had read a newspaper article announcing the fact that Whiteman's latest concert would feature a new Gershwin composition. Writing at a manic pace in order to meet the deadline, Gershwin composed what is perhaps his best-known work, Rhapsody in Blue. The opening riff to that song was featured in our story when Hemingway saved the Paris Ritz. And this is a piece of the Paul Whiteman version. During this time, and in the years that followed, Gershwin wrote numerous songs for stage and screen that quickly became standards, including Oh Lady Be Good, Someone to Watch Over Me, one of my favorite songs, Strike Up the Band, Embraceable You, another great song, Let's Call the Whole Thing Off, and They Can't Take That Away From Me. His lyricist for nearly all of these tunes was his older brother, Ira Gershwin, whose witty lyrics and inventive wordplay received nearly as much acclaim as Gershwin's compositions. In the 1920s, Gershwin spent time in Paris, which inspired his jazz-influenced orchestral composition, An American in Paris. 
Composed in 1928, An American in Paris inspired the 1951 Oscar-winning movie musical by the same name, which was directed by Vincente Minnelli and starred Gene Kelly and Leslie Caron. In 1935, a decade after composing Rhapsody in Blue, Gershwin debuted his most ambitious composition, Porgy and Bess. The composition, which was based on the novel Porgy by DuBose Hayward, drew from both popular and classical influences. Gershwin called it his folk opera, and it is considered not only to be Gershwin's most complex and best-known work, but also among the most important American musical compositions of the 20th century. Following his success with Porgy and Bess, Gershwin moved to Hollywood and was hired to compose the music for a film titled Shall We Dance, starring Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. It was while working on a follow-up film with Astaire that Gershwin's life would come to an abrupt end. The year was 1937, and he had begun to get severe headaches and was noticing strange smells. Doctors discovered a malignant brain tumor, and George went into surgery to have it removed on July 11th of that year, 1937, but never came out. One of America's most iconic composers was dead at the age of 38. And now, a portion of Gershwin's song, Someone to Watch Over Me, by Gertrude Lawrence. In Then there was Irving Berlin, another one of America's most prolific songwriters and a Tin Pan Alley legend, who lived to be 101 years old, by the way. Among his many hits you might recognize, White Christmas, Cheek to Cheek, What'll I Do, Putting on the Ritz, Alexander's Ragtime Band, which, by the way, earned him the title of King of Tin Pan Alley, Always, Let's Face the Music and Dance, and many other memorable hits. If you have a piano in your house and a piano songbook, there's a pretty good likelihood that one of those hits is going to be in it. Berlin was born in Tiumen, Russia on May 11, 1888, and immigrated to New York as a child. He worked as a street singer first, as a teen, and by 1906 he had become a singing waiter in Chinatown. His first published tune came at the age of 18, after which he soon changed jobs and worked writing lyrics for the music publishing company Watterson & Snyder. 
he released a major hit in 1911, Alexander's Ragtime Band, earning him the nickname we just mentioned, King of Tin Pan Alley. Irving Berlin was diligent in his writing efforts and was self-taught as a pianist, never learning how to read music and playing in the key of F-sharp, working with a special transcribing keyboard and assistants to explore other keys. Nonetheless, by the second decade of the 20th century, he had dozens upon dozens of songs under his belt. Berlin would go on to compose more than 1,500 songs and score dozens of musicals and films. Berlin also shaped patriotic fervor as well with his composition of God Bless America, first sung by Kate Smith in 1938 and becoming an unofficial national anthem of the United States. After the war, Berlin struck Broadway gold again with 1946's Annie Get Your Gun, inspired by the life of Annie Oakley. And we're going to be doing a story on her one of these days. That smash musical starred Ethel Merman and featured a slew of popular songs like Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better, I Got the Sun in the Morning, and There's No Business Like Show Business. Berlin had another hit with Merman in the 1950 musical Call Me Madam, which was also turned into a 1953 film. Irving Berlin would ultimately be nominated for nine Academy Awards with seven nods in the song category beginning in 1943 for White Christmas, which, by the way, was the number one selling single in history for years for Bing Crosby. I don't know if that was taken away by the Beatles or not, but White Christmas was and still is a very popular song in America. Many of Berlin's songs became popular hits and are considered part of the standards canon, having been covered by a multitude of artists who include Shirley Bassey, Nat King Cole, Diana Krall, Willie Nelson, Linda Ronstadt, Frank Sinatra, and Nancy Wilson. After crafting the 1962 musical Mr. President, Berlin retired, spending ample time in his Catskill Mountains home and eventually withdrawing from public appearances. Nonetheless, he continued to receive accolades and an outpouring of praise for his magnificent contributions to the musical landscape. He died in New York City on September 22, 1989, at the age of 101. You might remember the episodes we did on the story of the Titanic earlier this year. 30-year-old Wallace Henry Hartley, a violinist, was the band leader on the Titanic. After the ship struck an iceberg, Wallace Hartley assembled his eight-man band, and they eventually ended up on the boat deck near the entrance to the Grand Staircase, the last place they were seen before the ship sank below the waves. There, they played ragtime and waltzes, in an effort to keep everyone calm. Specifically, survivors reported them playing Alexander's Ragtime Band. Here's Alexander's Ragtime Band, the original soundtrack by Irving Berlin.
come on in here. It's the best band in the land. They can play a bugle call like you never heard before. So natural that you want to go to war. That's just the bestest band what I am. Oh, my honey lamb, come on along, come on along. Let me take you by the hand. Up to the man, up to the man, who's the leader of the band. And if you care to hear the Swanee River play, in red time, come on in here, come on in here. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. One great song from Tin Pan Alley was Charles K. Harris's After the Ball, which has been a piano favorite for over 115 years. You might have heard the tune, but never the lyrics. Charles K. Harris, in his later years, made a video in which he sang it himself, and you're going to get a chance to hear it in just a few minutes. He had written the song in 1892. Here's the story on After the Ball. According to his autobiography, Harris was living in Milwaukee when he escorted his younger sister to a ball in Chicago. Among other people he met there was a charming young couple engaged to be married. He wrote, Suddenly we learned that the engagement was broken, just a lover's quarrel, I presumed at the time, but they were both too proud to acknowledge that they were in the wrong. Later that night, he noticed the young man escorting another young lady home, as his former fiancée tried to hide her tears and he remembered thinking, many a heart is aching after the ball. He had a studio in Milwaukee with a shingle that proclaimed Charles K. Harris, banjoist and songwriter, songs written to order. The day after returning from Chicago, as he wrote, a customer came in asking for a new song for an upcoming minstrel show. Inspired by the breakup he had witnessed the evening before, he made up a story, and this was the story. An old bachelor explained to his niece why he was still single. He had seen his sweetheart in the arms of another and angrily rejected her. But it turned out that the man was her brother, and the verse that describes his letter darkly hits that she took her own life as a result of their breaking up. Like many popular songwriters before and since, Harris never learned to read or write musical notation. But in the space of an hour, he had written the lyrics, devised a melody, and figured out an accompaniment on the piano. That's the way it is with some creative people. It's like they're dropping a bucket into a well and they're just tapping it and boom, there it is. He called for his arranger, 
Joseph Clauder to come to the studio and write down the music as Harris sang and played it over and over. Then Clauder played it from the notation, while Harris pointed out whatever wrong notes there might have been. For the sum of $10, Clauder made polished arrangements both for piano and for orchestra. The first performance of After the Ball didn't go that well. The man who commissioned the song couldn't remember all the words and ended up mangling the story. No one was impressed, but Harris thought it had potential. Rather than risk another 85-cent payment from an established publisher, he published it himself, then set about to badger established singers to perform it. And that's when he hit pay dirt. J. Aldrich Libby introduced it in a hit show called A Trip to Chinatown and had great success with it. Then John Philip Sousa ended up liking the song and played it every day during his band's six-week engagement at the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, and that was in 1893. And then lots of other bands and singers performed it as well. Harris had become a success. He moved his office from Milwaukee to New York and Tin Pan Alley. While none of his later songs approached the unprecedented success of After the Ball, his publishing company did well enough there to inspire other songwriters to open their own companies in New York. After the Ball sold two million copies that year, and three million more in the following years. After the Ball and other American mega-hits swept Europe and eventually inspired European songwriters to present original songs in the American style. While Harris wasn't the first musically illiterate person to achieve success as a writer of popular songs, he certainly appeared to be the first to exert an international influence on the composition, publication, and marketing of popular music. And that's where Tin Pan Alley really changed American music, making it a business and learning how to promote it. And in a day when it seems like our culture almost regards anything before Elvis Presley as classical music, After the Ball still holds up pretty well in comparison to the hits that followed so closely behind. In this piece that you're going to hear, Harris, in his later years, is actually singing his song himself, in the first years that film started using sound. You could make a case that this is the first music video. This song was a mega hit, and some say it defined the 1890s as a decade. He's a little soft on the opening stanza and hard to understand, but it goes like this. A little maiden climbed on an old man's knee, begged for a story. Do, uncle, please. Why are you single? Why live alone? Have you no babies? Have you no home? I had a sweetheart years, years ago. Where she is now put, you soon will know. Listen to the story. I'll tell it all. I believe you're faithless. After the ball. And here he is singing his song, After the Ball. Hello, friends. You know, it seems only yesterday that I wrote that old-time song of mine, both words and music, of After the Ball. You know, I have a great fondness for that old song, which I composed way back in 1892. Would you like to hear it? Well, I'm going to try and sing it for you. Of course, I haven't got a voice like Caruso, but the sentiment is still there. And I hope that you will enjoy it the same as your mother's did. Years, 
years ago. Tin Pan Alley song that everyone who stays long enough for the seventh inning stretch in baseball knows. Take Me Out to the Ball Game, which, although written over a hundred years ago, is still the third most sung American song following Happy Birthday and the Star Spangled Banner. It was created by Tin Pan Alley writers Jack Norworth and Albert Von Tilzer, and as the story goes, it was 1908, and 29 year old Jack Norworth was riding the subway in New York City when he passed a billboard saying, Baseball today, Polo Grounds. The Polo Grounds was the home stadium for the New York Giants, which was a National League team at the time. There was something about the message that inspired him, and he pulled out a scrap of paper and started writing. Katie Casey was baseball mad, had the fever and had it bad. Just a route for the hometown crew. Every sow Katie blew meaning she spent all her money on attending the games. On a Saturday, her young beau called to see if she'd like to go, to see a show, but Miss Kate said, No, I'll tell you what you can do. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Just buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Katie Casey saw all the games, knew the players by their first names, told the umpire he was wrong, all along, good and strong. When the score was just two to two, Katie Casey knew what to do. Just to cheer up the boys she knew, she made the gang sing this song. Take me out to the ball game. Well, Jack Norwood didn't go to the polo grounds that day to catch a game. Excited and with fresh lyrics in hand, he now needed a melody to go with his words. And for that, he reached out to a composer friend named Albert Von Tilzer, 
who put the melody that we all know to it. Jack had his wife, Nora Bays, learn the lyrics and perform the song for vaudeville audiences. It was an instant hit in 1908. Audiences loved it. Later that year, a man named Edward Meeker recorded the song for the Edison Phonograph Company. It became a hit record and was the top song in the country for seven weeks. In fact, Take Me Out to the Ball Game turned out to be the most popular song of the year in 1908. Legend has it that neither one of the two writers had ever been to a ball game. But how would they have known about Peanuts and Cracker Jacks? Take me out to the ball game, sung by Edward Meeker, Edison Records. was baseball mad, had the fever and had it bad, just to root for the hometown through every zoo, Katie Blue. On the Saturday, her young beau called to see if she'd like to go to see a show, but Miss Kate said no, I'll tell you what you can do. Take me out to the ball game, take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and cracker jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes. You're out at the old ball game. Katie, Katie saw all the games. Knew the players by their first names. Told the umpire he was wrong all along. Good and strong. When the score was just two to two, Katie, Katie knew what to do. Just to cheer up the boys she knew, she made the gang sing this song. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and cracker jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Then there was ragtime music, and right in the middle of that was composer Scott Joplin who was already a huge success by the time he made it to Tin Pan Alley, but can't be ignored as one of the most successful composers of his day, as well as a tireless promoter of ragtime as a serious music genre. Scott was raised in Texarkana as the son of Florence Gibbons and Giles Joplin, who were both good musicians. And that was in the 1860s, where Scott learned to play first guitar and later piano at an early age. When he reached his teens, he became a traveling musician, playing in bars and dance halls where new musical forms were featured that formed the basis of ragtime, which had distinct syncopated rhythms and a fusion of musical sensibilities. Joplin lived for a time in Sedalia, Missouri in the 1880s, and in 1893 he fronted a band in Chicago during the World's Fair. He later settled in Sedalia again while continuing to travel with the waltzes, Please Say You Will, and A Picture of Her Face, becoming his first two published songs. He studied music at Sedalia's George R. Smith College for Negroes during the 1890s, and also worked as a teacher and mentor to other ragtime musicians. 
he published his first piano rag, Original Rags, in the late 1890s, but was made to share credit with another arranger. Then Joplin got smart and brought in a lawyer to ensure that he would receive a one-cent royalty of every sheet music copy sold of his next composition, The Maple Leaf Rag, because he knew he had a good one. In 1899, Joplin partnered with publisher John Stark to push the tune. Though sales were initially slight, it went on to become the biggest ragtime song ever, eventually selling more than a million copies. When ragtime started becoming all the rage, Joplin composed more songs, one of which, The Entertainer, was featured in the movie The Sting, with Robert Redford and Paul Newman. Joplin moved to New York in 1907, set up his own publishing business with his wife in 1913 in Tin Pan Alley, and spent his last years writing operas like Trimonesia, which was the precursor to Gershwin's Porgy and Bess. Joplin died April 1, 1917, and his favorite music, Ragtime, would make its resurgence as a popular music form twice more in the years to follow. Scott had forever ensured his place in the Music Hall of Fame and is still known as the King of Ragtime today. And here is the Maple Leaf Rag. There are lots more stories from Tin Pan Alley, and we'll revisit someday to talk about Jerome Kern, Rodgers and Hammerstein, Johnny Mercer, Hoagie Carmichael, Cole Porter, and others. And so we'll end here with another one of the great songs from Tin Pan Alley, In the Shade of the Old Apple Tree. Oh 
Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. And if you enjoyed this foray into music history, please take a moment and send us a kind review. Apple Podcast and Stitcher both accept reviews, and they're read at the end of most of our episodes and appreciated greatly by us, so thank you. Before we read reviews, I would like you to be aware that we recently launched two new 1001 shows, and we'd like you to give them a try. One is called 1001 History Challenge, and this show takes a phrase or quote from history or popular culture and gives you the backstory, leaving a few important details out for you to guess until the end, sort of Paul Harvey style. The most recent episode, as I write this, is the quote, A nation divided against itself cannot stand, and you're asked to figure out who said it and when. Are you up for the challenge? The 1001 History Challenge episodes average about 8 minutes each, and the backstories vary from history to song titles to phrases from popular movies. Our second new show is 1001 History's Best Storytellers, and I created this out of demand as we've been besieged with new history authors seeking interview time, and I've had a lot of really good stuff coming our way all this year, some great history, so I decided to create a show just for interviews. Some upcoming interviews at 1001 History's Best Storytellers are The Hidden Nazi by author Dean Reuter, who, with his colleagues, discovered proof that Nazi mastermind Hans Kammler did not commit suicide at the end of World War II, as everyone thought. Instead, the Americans helped him to change his name and live in obscurity in return for nuclear secrets. This is a story you don't want to miss next Sunday night at 1001 History's Best Storytellers. The links for Apple and Stitcher and our website, where you can find that show, are in the show notes. Also coming to that show, Brian Kilmeade's Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers, and Conspiracies with Andy Thomas, and many more great one-hour interviews that really give you some untold history from the author-researcher perspective. I highly recommend these new shows, so please find, listen, and subscribe. And send us reviews fast. We need them very, very much as these shows are new and they need a kickstart. And now those reviews I promised. The first, five stars. One of the best. Thanks, guys and gals, for your work. That's from John Selly, Apple Podcast, Canada. And, I, and I'll add a footnote to that. There are gals involved on the advertising end. And we're also looking for a gal who's a good reader. The next five stars enjoying historic moments. A very good podcast, interesting and highly recommended. 
That one from Nexus XX Apple Podcast US. And this one, five stars, another good story. Heard all kinds of stories about Booth and Lincoln from both sides of the family, north and south. But you have made another great story interesting. Keep it up. You're doing a great job. That one from Wolfie Wolf, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, interesting, five stars. I found this podcast and app. I've enjoyed each one I've listened to. Keep up the good work. That one from David Red H, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars, very entertaining. Just started listening to this podcast recently, and I'm finding it very enjoyable. Also, the narrator seems an oddest gentleman. Keep up the good work. That one from Fun Chucks, Apple Podcast, Ireland. And this one, a national treasure that enriches seekers of the truth. Five stars. This podcast is the real deal, the standard by which all should be measured. One, content. Beautifully written deep dives into some of the most compelling topics that history has to offer. Two, listenability. John Hagedorn is at the pinnacle of delivery. The cadence and inflections, combined with character, provide believability, authority, and wisdom that I trust. Three, honesty. Unfiltered truth. Remember what that sounds like? Subscribe to this podcast for a reminder. That one from the Wizard 929 Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all for taking the time to write those reviews. They're appreciated more than you'll ever know. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a lot more with a brand new show at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Take care. We'll be back soon.